Gresham College presents Living Without Electricity by Professor Roger Kemp. Good evening and thank you for your, um, your welcome. What I'd like to talk about today is the experience in Lancaster of living without electricity. But before talking specifically about what happened during Storm Desmond, I'd like to digress slightly to talk briefly about the electricity system and the, system and the way that's undergoing massive transformation. Traditionally, electricity has been generated in large power stations well away from centres of population. It's basically the same technology that's been going for at least 100 years. But things are changing. Rather than places like Fiddler's Ferry, to which incidentally I'm taking a group of uh, students later in this week, we're seeing a complete switch to different forms of energy. This is uh, earlier this month. You can see the uh, balance of where various parts of our electricity came from. And the red along the bottom, that's coal. The yellow just above it, that's gas. So whereas five, ten years ago, coal would have dominated, now it doesn't. In future, another 10, 15 years, we'll probably see gas being phased out and we'll see mainly renewables, nuclear and other forms of energy. So this is really changing the dynamics of the electricity system that we have. Now, if you think about the transmission system, the general view that you, you would have is a big pylon striding across the country, national grid. But that's really only part of the story. There are also a lot of distribution networks scattered around different parts of the country, each dealing with the distribution in that particular area. In the Lancaster area, it's electricity northwest. And if you look at a traditional view of electricity, there's generation, the big power stations, transmission, the big pylons, distribution, the smaller pylons, and the cables in the, in the street. And what we're talking about today really is what happens at the distribution level on the diagram, the 132 kV down to the 33 kV and then to the 11 kV. But this is as it was a few years ago and as it largely still is now. Before very long, it will be different. Before very long, we will not be seeing this um, movement from high voltage through medium voltage to low voltage, but we'll be seeing something far more like this, which is actually part of the grid somewhere near Cambridge, with generators all over the place feeding in at different places and at different times and with different sources. And this is going to be a dramatic change to the way in which electricity is generated and is used. And during the course of this talk, I'll come back to this additional complexity that we're building in to the electricity network. So having done a quick overview of the electricity network we're talking about, let's move on to Storm Desmond. You probably remember... December 2015, Storm Desmond resulted in round about 300 to 350 millimetres of rain in 24 hours over quite a large part of Cumbria. That part of Cumbria was where the water for the River Loon comes from. And already the floodplains were flooded, the ground was saturated because we'd had a lot of uh, wet weather beforehand, and so we were in a position where there was really nowhere else for the water to go. This is our River Loon on a nice day, a few months after the floods. 
But during the floods, we were seeing 1,700 tonnes of water a second. And if you think about it, that would fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool in about one and a half seconds. This was coming down the loon, and it ended up inevitably with quite serious flooding. Water Survey produced a map for a report which looked at the extent of the floods. And really, it doesn't look very impressive. If you look at some of the floods of places like Kendall and further north, Cockermouth, you'll see huge areas flooded. Lancaster didn't have huge areas flooded. There was an area in the city centre, which incidentally included Sainsbury's and the fire station and the bus station, and then there was an industrial estate. Unfortunately, on that industrial estate was the substation, and that was a substation that took the 132 kV from the national grid and basically transformed it into 33 kV that then went out to, to smaller substations around the town. Once that substation was switched off, the whole city lost power. There was obviously a question afterwards, why on earth did anyone build a substation next to the river? During the First World War, there was an armaments factory around that place. They needed a power station, so a power station was built to drive the armaments factory. After the war, the armaments factory was closed, the power station was converted to civilian use and was taken over by Lancaster Corporation. And it grew and it grew and it grew, and that's where all the cables came together. And then in the mid-1970s, when it was decided to close these relatively small power stations and rely on the big stations like Fiddler's Ferry I showed earlier, that's where the substation was, that's where the cables came together. And the previous serious flood had been more than 50 years ago, so nobody was going to say, this is a silly place to put a substation, let's move it. So that's where it was, and when the flood arrived, it was fairly seriously flooded. If you look at this picture, you can see a sort of tide mark on the fence. This is the substation, those are the floods marks. And this is the substation itself. What happened on 5th of December 2015, we lost supplies to more than 60,000 properties, which represented probably about 100,000 people. It was the entire area of Lancaster and Morecambe and quite a few of the surrounding villages. And it wasn't fully restored until the 8th of December, about three days later. ENWL, the distribution company, did a brilliant job of finding 75 generators. They brought some from Northern Ireland, some from Devon and Cornwall, from all over the place. And slowly the power was put back on. They also had to do a major reconfiguration job. The picture on the left shows their buzz bar chamber, the 33 kV that had um, fractured. On the right, in the middle of the night, they were busy rewiring the entire substation, putting in new cables and so on. It came back on, but it was a lot of work. Three months after the event, we held a workshop in Lancaster University where we invited people from all sorts of different parts of the community to come together and tell us about their experience. And we also invited about half a dozen uh, people from government departments in London to come and learn from this. So altogether, we filled a lecture room for a day, talking about what our experiences were of the flood and what the implications were. And the rest of this talk is largely about 
what came out of that particular uh, workshop. I think the first thing that came out was that we lost communications. You've probably all seen a cubicle like that somewhere standing next to a street. That's where the fibre comes in from the exchange and it turns into copper going into, the, into individual houses. If you go around the back of the cubicle, you'll probably see a label that says danger 230 volts, which of course suggests that if you lose mains, you've lost the functionality of your whole local internet. Fixed line phones are better. If you have a traditional phone, great. If you have a PABX system, as dentists, doctors, surgeries and people like that have, then you've got a problem. And if you have decided to go modern and have a wireless handset and throw away your old phone, again, you've got a problem. I was actually feeling quite smug because we have got a a nice push-button phone, but it's a genuine traditional one. What I forgot was, though, that the numbers are not now stored on a piece of paper next to the phone. They're actually stored in the phone's memory. And to access that memory, I actually need mains electricity. So I had a phone that worked, but I didn't know what numbers to call. (laughs) Mobile phones also suffered a problem. Uh, If you look at a big box next to the mobile phone mast, you'll probably see, again, it says danger 230 volts, takes one or two kilowatts, definitely plugged into the mains, once you've lost power, it may be that the phone has got a small battery, the transmitter's got a small battery that keeps it working for a few minutes, but generally it goes off very, very quickly. And our experience was that we, but after half an hour, we'd lost all the internet, we'd lost all mobile phones, we'd lost quite a bit of the wired telephone network, at least for those people that didn't have the right equipment, And communications became very difficult. Looked at as individual subsystems, it's probably fairly obvious that lights work by electricity, central heating, pumps, control systems need electricity, TV, our TV is received from a um, small transmitter in Lancaster, so that needs electricity, digital radio... Even things like garage doors, they've got a plug on them, or at least a cable going into them, so you lose electricity, you can't open your garage door. Okay for people if you've got a door in from the house, if you haven't, and quite a lot of houses were built like this, then it's rather difficult to know how you get your car out. Streetlights were off, shops were closed, credit cards weren't accepted, cash machines weren't working, and so on. And put this lot together, and the effect on the community really became quite serious. For those members of the community lucky enough to have their um, log burner and a gas hob and a few bottles of wine sort of stacked in the garage somewhere, and and a way of getting into the garage, life was okay. Invite your neighbours round, have a convivial evening, light a few candles. You know, it feels a bit like Boy Scout circa 1960. For those living in flats, life was really rather different. Again, with no heat, because very few flats have gas in them. No cooking, no lights, no extractor fans. On higher floors, no water, including nothing for the toilets, because they require a pump. No lifts, no entry phone. And what happens down at the street door, originally they failed to lock, but but you could actually open them from the inside, and then they were unlocked so anybody could wander around in the building. I think to be... An elderly person reliant on a wheelchair 
in a fairly high floor of a, of a block of flats with no electricity and no lifts is quite challenging. Fortuitously, quite a few things went right. The mains water was reliable. We have a big reservoir just next to Lancaster, about a mile from the city centre, 100 metres above the level of, of the city, 100 metres by 200 metres reservoir, contains plenty of water for several days. So that worked. The filtration, the chlorination plants, they worked fine. The sewage networks didn't flood. The relevant companies actually had standby supplies, so that was fine. Gas supplies were available. The pumping pressure and pressure-reducing stations were outside the affected area and or had backup. So we didn't lose water, we didn't lose effective sewage systems, and we didn't lose gas. But I think we were lucky. A lot of these normally rely on electricity, and I wouldn't like to guarantee that every time 100,000 people use, lose electricity, all these systems will keep working. The hospital were, in principle, fine. Their backup generators were working, but they had difficulty in contacting patients. Quite a few staff were unable to get in. They couldn't easily contact the staff because they were on the phone. There were more NE patients because doctor surgeries, some of them on the Monday, weren't available because clinics weren't available, and so that was the obvious place to go to. It was also one of the few places in town that actually had the lights on all the time, and that's where people gravitated. Groups of young people realised they didn't have phone reception, didn't know whether it was because their phone was flat or whether it was because it's a loss of, of, of network, but wanted to charge it, so took a multi-way extension, walked into the hospital wandered around the corridors till they found a 13-amp socket, plugged in their multi-way extension, all plugged in their phone chargers, and sat round in a circle waiting for their phones to charge. Unfortunately, it didn't work even when they'd done that. But and this, I think, is an issue that they found that people were gravitating there. And they gravitated to the canteen, which is free to use for visitors as well as for staff. And what turned out was that after about a day and a half they'd served all the food they'd got in for the week, which I don't think pleased the rest of the staff. This raises a somewhat more fundamental question about where do you actually turn in a crisis? Back in medieval times, in Lancaster, it would have been the castle. In Victorian times, it was the town hall that ran everything. They ran the tramway, they ran the gas works, they ran the water supply, they, ran, they repaired the roads, it was the town hall and they probably ran the schools with the local school board. So, in Victorian times, it was a town hall. Now it's not very obvious. We've had privatisation, disaggregation, and there isn't in the same way a single place that you can say, this is where power resides, this is how it all works. I'll come back to that in a moment when I'm talking about schools. One of the people who came to our workshop was the um, services manager from a care home. They had no light, no heat, no hot water. They did have a gas cooker, but for safety reasons, it was interlocked with the extractor fan. So unless the extractor fan was running, you couldn't actually switch the cooker on. Obviously, the extractor fan wasn't running. 
They had powered medical equipment, the sort of lifts that were necessary to help residents out of their um, beds or chairs, um, dialysis machines, other sorts of pieces of equipment. None of those worked. The alarm systems didn't work. The telephones from the um, residents' rooms back to to the centre didn't work. The phone system didn't because it had a PABX system, a little uh, local exchange. And TV didn't work. And if you think about what a lot of residents in homes do for much of the day, TV was actually quite important. Remembering this was Storm Desmond, which was really quite a big storm, I think the chef did a brilliant job by basically making a barbecue in the garden and cooking meals for 70 people outside. Um, The residents' families brought in a camper van, which had gas, colour gas cooking, and made, sort of spent all day making hot drinks for people. It was very much a sort of pulling together, and, it, and people survived, and life went on quite well. But it was more luck than judgment, I think, that all this came together, and there weren't more serious problems. Increasingly, policy in the UK is for care in the community. We've heard over the last months about the problems of bed blocking, hospitals occupy because they can't put people back into the community, heard much pressure from ministers talking about the need to get elderly, frail people into the community being looked after by care workers. This all depends on electricity. If you have a push button round your neck to call the, the care providers, it goes to a base station in your house, that base station plugs into the 30-amp socket. That then dials up on the phone to a control call centre. That centre then can text message the carers to ask them to come and sort out your problem. Lose electricity and at least three stages of that no longer work. There's no um, base station in the house. The fact that the electricity has gone off means it sends an emergency message anyhow, so the care centre gets completely inundated with messages and they've got no way of contacting the carers. So the whole care system risks falling over when you've lost electricity. People also, sometimes at home, have oxygen concentrators, they have dialysis machines, they have uh, stair lifts, they have all sorts of other things to help them survive and live in the community. Most of those run on electricity. One of the biggest impacts was on homeless people. Lancaster is very lucky in being, although a relatively small town, in having the Duke's Theatre, which is a producing theatre company. And it put on a performance jointly with Lancaster Homeless Action about the effects of loss of electricity and the floods simultaneously. It's pretty scary being homeless at the best of times. Being homeless in a completely dark city, when you're not quite sure what's going to flood... You can't see anything, there are no lights on anywhere, there are no shops lit, uh, is actually even more scary. And the stories recounted by people in that performance were ones that one wouldn't really wish to live through. Another person who came to our workshop was the head teacher of a local primary school. She had a problem that she couldn't actually communicate with the staff. She couldn't contact parents because... Primary schools generally contact parents through bulk text messaging or through uh, internet. The access control system wasn't working. They had an alarm system, 
But since it was um, put out to the lowest bidder, the lowest bidder had its call centre in Belfast. Now, the operator in Belfast didn't actually know what was going on in Lancaster and anyhow couldn't then phone up the local staff. So the whole alarm system fell over. It's on the A6, and as you can see, there's a big streetlight just outside it. Important in the middle of winter if children are going out in the dark. They also have a crossing control. We have flashing yellow lights, 20-mile-hour limits during school peak periods. Obviously, none of that worked, so they had to close. One school, the only way it could communicate with parents was to take an old pillowcase, write on it in marker pen, school closed till Wednesday, and tie it to the railings around the school. In these days of modern electronic communication, that's getting into the bit of the primitive uh, end of the technology. One comment that a number of school people made was that heads are on their own. Because of the push to convert schools into academies, they no longer have an office to deal with in Lancaster. Lancaster Education Office, or whatever it used to be called, no longer has much power or much effect. The academies often have their headquarters somewhere away from the town, could be miles away. They complained that they'd heard about Gold Command and Silver Command, all this other emergency stuff, but nobody contacted them. They didn't know how to contact anybody. Nobody told them anything. They could actually go to a place outside Lancaster if they could get their car to go there um, and download something, tweets from the electricity network people to see what was going on. But they had no real way of knowing what was happening. And they had no real way of contacting anybody in authority or being contacted by people in authority. And I think the heads, certainly judging by those we spoke to, felt they were very much on their own in this environment. One supermarket had a backup generator. When the power went off, half past ten, it sent an alarm to the relevant uh, contractor by two o'clock in the morning, with much banging, according to a um, colleague who lived just next door to the supermarket, a big generator came on the back of a lorry. Thing was switched on, fridges worked, everything was fine. It was the only shop open, only big supermarket open in Lancaster. The ATM, the cash machine in the supermarket, continued to work, um, but they couldn't use the debit cards or credit cards. If you remember back... 10, 15 years or so, credit cards, you put it down, they put a piece of uh, transparent paper over it with lots of carbon paper, ran something backwards and forwards, and eventually it got to your bank and, and, you, and you paid. No more, of course. Now, it's instant electronic communication. If that's failed, your credit card doesn't work. Within the university, roughly 50% of coffee sold on site is actually paid for by contactless card payments none of which, of course, worked. So, in effect, retail shut down. There was a problem that by four o'clock in the afternoon, there was still a queue of people round the store saying, we want to buy. But the manager felt really he didn't have the authority to say, I'm going to ignore Sunday trading laws. And he said, I'm sorry, we've got to shut. It's, it's the law. And this, I think, again, raises an interesting issue as to where really authority is. I guess it had this been a French town with a strong local mayor, he would have said, don't be ridiculous, keep open and keep selling food. 
but doesn't seem to be anybody in that position in a, in a modern city. At the university, we, decided, we didn't, re- again, really know what was happening. Um, we have about 10% of the population in the university, um, but even so, there was no direct link with any of the sort of emergency control type people. We decided to close early, a week early for Christmas. It was going to be chaotic. We didn't quite know what to do. We couldn't really keep people in their rooms because, unlike during the miners' strike, candles are now banned because of the requirements of the insurance industry. Um, So we couldn't keep them there without fire detection and without emergency lighting because they're legally required. So we said, right, we'll close a week early and try and catch up sometime next term. But how do you tell students? Normally, we'd do it by internet or by um, text messaging. Particularly those in flats in town, it was very difficult to get in touch. For people living on campus, it was relatively easy. We went round and banged on doors. It would have been better if we had a big bell and went round sort of saying, oh, yay, oh, yay, or something, a bit like a medieval town crier. But in fact, just banging on doors worked. For for people in the town, we tried to tell them... um, tell the people we could get hold of, and then ask them to pass the message on. Unfortunately, the message got corrupted. And the police, who also came to our workshop, said that at some particular time during the floods, they reckoned they had several hundred people queuing up outside saying, where's the bus to get to the railway station in Preston? I've no idea what message, how it got corrupted like that, but... um, That just indicates the difficulty of trying to communicate by using rumour as opposed to using a more direct method. Britain's at the forefront of electronic communication. If you read the website of DCMS, you'll see that improved connectivity is revolutionising our quality of life. Broadband delivery is part of it. It's delivering superfast broadband and so on. But... By the better the broadband, the better the internet, the more likely we are to use it, and therefore the more susceptible we are to loss of electricity and failure of that. And we're getting ourselves very much into a position where we're becoming almost addicted to electricity and withdrawing electricity, we get quite serious withdrawal symptoms. I mentioned that the university were trying to to persuade some 10,000 students to go home early for Christmas, and the obvious way to go is through the railway station. The power supply worked because it's fed from feeders in somewhere near Kendall and further south in Garstang, well outside the affected area. The signalling system's got an emergency backup coming from the 25 kV supply. But the town supply is used for platform lighting, it's used for public address, it's used for ticket machines, it's used for point heaters and all sorts of things of that sort. And the regulations say, without platform lighting, trains must not stop. So here were we trying to convince uh, students, please, um, you know, how about getting on a train and going home? And there was a railway saying, oh, well, you know, we can't do that. Safety regulations say we can't stop trains after dark which in Lancaster in December comes about sort of three o'clock in the afternoon. So, um, again, a situation where you can see the logic of saying you've got to have platform lighting, but you can also see that there's nobody to say, under these circumstances, can't we do something different? 
There are any number of infrastructure interdependencies. Here are just a few. The road network relies on traffic lights, it relies on petrol pumps. Electricity networks depend not on bulk deliveries of fuel, but certainly on deliveries of things like lubricating oil and so on into the power stations. Data networks rely heavily on the electricity network. In turn, parts of the electricity network rely on data networks. Control of drainage systems. I mean, I could go on. And if you were to draw a comprehensive diagram, it would look like a box full of demented spiders on LSD with interconnections absolutely everywhere. And most of them come back to electricity as being fairly fundamental to most of the activities that we do. (coughs) Changing the subject slightly and going back to the 2008-2009 crash, part of the analysis of what went wrong was that you had a lot of people working in different companies each with their own set of objectives, each trying to avoid losses in their own organisation, all working in a really quite complicated method without any real management of what was happening. And it all collapsed, or quite largely collapsed. And these are some of the indicators that came out of that, indicating really what what are the factors that indicate complexity as opposed to something just simply being complicated. They include a large number of participants, all sharing responsibilities, a very wide geographical spread and organisational distribution of a single critical system. So no longer the responsibility of one organisation, but spread between many, many organisations. Lots of dependencies between various critical systems. Lots of unplanned and unplannable human interactions and very many actors, all with their own incentives to optimise their own corner of the system. And this describes some of the systems that we've built ourselves in this country over the last few decades. In the days when things were run by the CGB, or earlier by Lancaster Corporation, it was relatively easy to see who was in effect the system's architect and who was running this and who would make things happen. Sometimes they didn't do it, but at least there wasn't any sort of ambiguity about who was doing things. Now you have to look at it and you say, well, is it really the responsibility of National Grid? Is it the responsibility of the distribution network operators? Is it the responsibility of the person you pay your electricity bill to? Is it the response... And you can go on like this. Because we now have a more competitive system, arguably actually a cheaper system, possibly a more responsive system, but also a more brittle system, that when it falls over, it can fall over in a big way and it's not very obvious how it fell over, what caused it or how you're going to pick it up again. I'd now like to do a little bit of, um, I suppose you might call it science. System control, how do you actually manage an electricity system? Well, thinking back to where I started this talk and about these big systems that have been running since about 1900... Central generator, transmission and distribution grids, and consumer loads, the three big central parts of a system. A big central office called grid control that could phone up or send text messages or email messages to generators saying, please provide so many kilowatts. And then also some control systems on the power stations that measured the voltage 
and if it got a bit low, turned up the excitation slightly. Measured the um, frequency, if everything was running a bit too slowly, put a bit more steam into the turbines, which included, in effect, a bit more coal into the burners. Run basically from the centre. If you look at where we might be in 15, 20 years' time, central generators will be very much smaller. We'll have a lot of controllable consumer loads and a lot of distributed generators. And so the standard way of controlling power stations from the grid control down to the major power stations demanding either more volts or more power will be far less less solid, much more tenuous links. And instead we'll be looking at where we have um, home energy management systems, smart cities, community groups, all taking real-time price signals presumably from grid control, but possibly from other places, and operating controllable consumer loads, controllable generation, and so on. So possibly controlling the solar panels on your roof or the wind turbine at the bottom of the garden. This is making us into a much more complicated system. And this risks taking us into the category of complexity, where it's not very obvious what the total number of failure modes are how the system might fail, and how it would respond if you had a major upset, like loss of power to a large part of the, part of the um, area, or major terrorist attack or something of that sort. There are also other challenges. There's a challenge of Google. Not just Google, but all sorts of um, high-tech companies. Increasingly, these people are providing apps that help you control your um, electricity operations and your heating operations. And I have a neighbour who has a thermostat in her house that knows where she is because it talks via the mobile phone network to find out where her mobile phone is. And when the mobile phone gets closer than sort of 20 miles from the house, it says, ah, she's coming home, I'd better switch the heating on. Now, If you've got these types of systems, they might well be looking at, for example, the current wholesale price of electricity, and they might all do the same thing at the same time. So there's quite a likelihood that you would get, under some circumstances, herd effects. There's also a likelihood that if you have a lot of systems like this operating on the internet, it's very much easier for someone to hack those systems than it would be to hack the main control systems for switchgear and part of the grid. So the opportunity for things to go wrong are probably increasing. I don't think anybody's going to predict what might or might not happen, and nobody is saying that there's a very strong probability of the grid collapsing or things going wrong, but we are getting to a situation where things are more complicated and where the management of it as a complicated, complex system is actually very much more challenging than the management of things as we saw in Lancaster. So, coming back to the sort of theme of this talk, as a society, we are dependent on electricity. And as I said earlier, you could almost argue we're addicted to it. And if we lose it, we get withdrawal symptoms. The electricity network itself is becoming more complicated 
that does have some benefits. It gives different ways of generating electricity. But it also, with it, carries risks. And I think at the moment it's not obvious what those risks are and what the possibilities of these complex failures might be. Increasingly, our communications depend on the internet. I mean, you've probably seen cartoons of people, two people having a meal together and not actually talking, but just texting each other. I mean, that's perhaps a bit extreme, but increasingly people send emails, they send texts, they possibly don't speak by phone so much. And as for going around and banging on someone's door to send them a message, that's a bit bit old-fashioned nowadays. Increasingly, care in the community is taking over from big central... um, hospitals, uh, homes, and so on. But this and many other medical medical services rely basically on electricity. And finally, safety regulations have reduced risk, must be applauded, but they've also made us more dependent. So overall, as a society, we're moving increasingly towards dependence on electricity. At much the same time, we're seeing a situation where the probability of extreme weather events is increasing, the probability of storms is increasing, the implications we don't quite know, and we're also seeing a greater complexity of our electrical systems and about interconnectivity that is making life more difficult to analyse and very much less obvious. This then raises the question, where should we actually be putting resilience? Now, if you were to take, if you like, the Donald Trump view of resilience, he'd say everybody ought to have their own personal generator and a shotgun to protect it. Perhaps. Um, That's great, except the people that are desperately in need of, um, of resilience are probably elderly people living in an nth floor of a block of flats with their dialysis machine. And they're probably not the best people to be using um, electrical generators and big big stocks of petrol in their flats. You could say it should be with a service provider. So if a mobile phone company is providing a mobile phone, they have to provide a diesel generator with every transmitter. But do that too much and you quite quickly double the cost of, um, of providing the service. And because this is something that happens very rarely... 1% chance, 2% chance, somewhere. Um, It's not something that you can make very much of an economic case for. If we lived in somewhere like, I don't know, Lagos or Baghdad or somewhere, where there was quite a strong probability that every week you'd get a power cut of some sort, then it'd be quite easy to do a financial justification, I'll buy a generator or we should buy, buy a battery here. But in Britain, with a generally fairly reliable network, to try and make that case that it's worth doubling the cost of all mobile phone connections for the once in every n years event doesn't seem to work out quite so well. You could argue again that it's the local electricity network's responsibility and certainly our local network has now built a two metre high wall around the substation whereas before it had a one metre high wall. Um, Hopefully it won't overtop a two metre wall but we don't know and there may be something else that happens goes wrong somewhere else that up till now we haven't really seen. So it's not obvious where you should really start building in resilience. Quite clearly, we need it somewhere, and it may be what we have to do is to have sort of scheduled resilience or distributed resilience within our own organisations, within 
uh, um, our domestic situation within local, local communities and within service providers? I don't know. I don't think anybody at the moment knows. But one thing is quite clear. We definitely do need extra resilience somewhere in the network. I gather that um, Gresham College has copies of a, um, not exactly a transcript of this, what I've been talking about, but something that I wrote that is um, fairly similar to what I might have said. If you want a bit more detail and some more coloured pictures, um, if you go onto the internet, assuming it's working, and search for RAN, standing for Royal Academy of Engineering, living without electricity, you'll come across that report, which was basically a report of the workshop and talking about all the sort of things that came out of our experience of living without electricity. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.